Hey guys, so as you may have heard, we are currently in a global pandemic. As everybody does their part, we at Messy Modern Ministry would also like to do our part. Therefore, all of our episodes currently are being recorded remotely through Zoom. And so we would like to apologize for any audio that is not yet up to our standard that we want it to be and that it will eventually be. Nevertheless, we hope you guys enjoy the episode and we're going to get right into it. Welcome to Messy Modern Ministry, a resource where we equip leaders to navigate the ups and downs of ministry in our modern world. My name is Kristen. And I'm Joe. And we are so excited to have you join us today. On this episode, we have Pastor Mike Cervello, lead pastor of Redeemer Church in Utica, New York. Welcome, Pastor Mike. Thank you. Good to be here. Excited to be part of your podcast. Thank you. We're so excited to have you. So first question, just tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are in ministry. I'd be happy to. Uh, Before I do, let me just uh, say to everybody that's listening that I'm so proud of you guys and what you're doing. And I don't think there could be a better name for a podcast about ministry called Messy Modern Ministry. I mean, ministry is definitely messy, but proud of you, Joe. You know, obviously you're part of the family and watch you grow up and to see you become the man of God that you are and just kind of doing this and reaching out. It's a great privilege and a blessing to watch. And uh, even with Kristen now uh, becoming part of the family, it's it's a great thing. So for those of you who don't know and are listening, Mike is Pastor Mike. I call him Mike because we're just family, but Pastor Mike is my cousin. Joe's mother and my mother-in-law are sisters. So yeah, about me, I grew up in a pastor's home, uh, but I would start my uh, ministry experience or my calling back to when I was 14 years old, I had a radical experience with Jesus while I was reading my Bible. Most of the kids in my youth group and my church tire of hearing the story, but my father was a pastor. I went to a Christian school, uh, was in Sunday school, went to every church service, had the Bible all around me. I had to memorize scripture verses for my Christian school, for my Sunday school. I was a good kid, you know, never smoked drink or chew, hang around those who do type of thing. Never had a rebellious phase. But when I was 14, I picked up the Bible and read it for the first time, not for an assignment, but because I was searching for God. I went through this, for lack of a better way of explaining it, this sense of if I died, I wasn't sure where I would go. Now, I had said a prayer when I was five. I had spoken in tongues when I was six. But when I was 14, there was this reality that if I stood before a holy God, that I I just couldn't stand. And so it led me to pick up my Bible and read it. And when I did, I just came to this encounter with Christ. I understood what he did for me on the cross in a very simple way. And I got saved. Um, that's where I consider myself having become alive. Um, I started there because that put me on the trajectory of saying, I want to dedicate my whole life to serving Jesus, which led me to go to Bible college. After I got a Bible college, the Lord put me in a place that I never thought that I would be in. And that was in youth ministry, which is kind of a funny story. I got out of Bible college, I came home, and uh, I had my sights set on just kind of helping out in ministry with my father. And one day, my dad brought me into his office and says, I want to make you the youth pastor for just a short period of time. Uh, What had happened was the youth in the church were having all types of problems, and there wasn't really a youth group that was functional at the time. We used to have uh, this TV show that was broadcast throughout our area, and people would watch my dad on TV and then come to church. Well, we had a a significant sized church for the area that we're in. So uh, when people would walk into our auditorium, of course, a new visitor would sit in the back. Well, that's where all the youth would sit, all these kids that were not interested in God so much. And they would pass out Game Boys and, you know, magazines and things to their friends. That was the way they got through service. And this visitor card had come in 
and the visitor card had said, we came to church today, we watched Pastor Cervello on TV, but we're filling out this visitor card because we couldn't understand a word that was being said because the kids in front of us were talking so loud. So that visitor card became a key moment in my life because my dad had said to me, uh, I want you to be a youth pastor for a little while so we could find a real youth pastor. <laughs> that was the word, <laughs> the real, uh, like a real youth pastor. And uh, I wound up doing youth ministry for 10 years and three months. Wow. And God bless, God bless that youth ministry. We went from the very first youth meeting we did, there was five kids that showed up to uh, when I had turned it over to Mark Schilling. There was probably about 160 regular young people that were coming to the youth ministry about 50 kids a year that were going on missions trips. There was 30 kids in the internship program. And God was just doing some some really great stuff. And then my dad asked me to take the church. We went through a really slow transition. It took took almost 10 years and was the way that it needed to go just to make sure that people were good with the transition. And so since then, I've been serving as the senior pastor of Redeemer Church in Utica, New York. So that's kind of my my ministry story. That's awesome. When you took over the church, when you took over Redeemer, was it one campus or was it multi-campus? When I took over Redeemer, we had just started our Rome campus. So there was only one other. So we started a refugee campus after that. Uh, When I say that, I don't know that's the proper terminology, refugee campus, but Utica has the largest population of refugees per capita in the entire United States. And so when these refugees were showing up in our city, they started coming to church because some of them had been Christians previously. And of course, they didn't speak the language, so they would just sit through service because they're Christians and that's what they do. They come to church. And so we, we soon decided that it's probably best for them to have a service in their own language. So we bought a building down in a certain section of town where most of the refugees live. And uh, we started a campus for uh, Burmese-speaking refugees and Nepali speaking refugees. Then after that, we adopted a church in Albany and uh, walked through a uh, uh, situation there, and they opted to become a campus as a result. Uh, and then in most recent history, a couple of years ago, we planted a church in, in Syracuse that is a campus. So those are our, our churches. So you guys have four campuses now, plus the refugee campus. Yes. That's awesome. When you had the services in a different language, was it specifically taught by somebody who spoke the language or were they learning the same thing as the other campuses and it was being translated? So the simple answer to your question is the messages that are preached on the weekend would then be sent to the refugee campus and they would be translated. And one of the refugees who was appointed the pastor would preach the message. They could go off topic. Say, for example, if there was something going on in the church that they needed to address that was more than fine, but for the most part, we all stuck together in the series of things that we were doing. They just they just spoke it or translated my message, Mark's message, whoever was speaking that weekend for their own local congregation, for the most part. So I know some multi-campus churches allow their campus pastors to preach whatever they want to preach. Do you guys allow that, or do you feel that every Sunday you guys should preach the same message across all campuses? Well, for the most part, we're broadcast. When it's not, and the campus pastor preaches, we assign the topic or the passage in particular, and then they can preach from that. What I'm trying to say is there's guidelines. They can't just preach on whatever they want. What is the thought process behind doing that? The thought process behind that is is that 
if we're one church, we have to be about the same thing. We're Protestant, right? So we put a high value on the word. That's the highlight of our service. That's where everything is leading to. And so uh, we want to make sure that we're all saying the same thing and leading the church in the same direction. So that would be the reason. How do you do different things like discipleship or different ministries? How does that work? Well, when you're talking about discipleship, there's different realms of discipleship, right? So there's small group, there's the youth meetings, there's what happens at the large group gatherings. There's ministries that are happening. Every, every single one of those is part of a discipleship technique. Generally, it's being very careful about what curriculums are being used, what type of teachings are being disseminated, and, and that type of thing through, through the different ministries. Sure. So, for example, if you have women's ministry happening in Utica, are the women in Rome learning the same thing? There's a lot of liberty within boundaries that the campus pastors have. So there are definitely times where we say to the church, we're all doing this together, right? And there's a high priority on that. But then at other times, there's independence that is given to those campuses. Again, depending on, there's different needs at different places. There's different cultures in different places. I can tell you, for example, in Albany, it's a very different world than Utica. The economy is a lot better in Albany than it is in Utica. The lifestyle in Albany is a lot different than it is in Utica. So there's different needs at different times, okay? So we may say this is a curriculum that the whole church is doing. This is something that we're all walking through. This is something that we're all learning. But then there is the other side of it where there's times where the campus pastor says, listen, the the women in their church are going to do this, or you know, the men are going to do this, or we're starting a group for people that have been through a divorce. That may or may not happen at other campuses. The, The answer to the question is it's both and. So I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about decision-making. Obviously, as a lead pastor, you have, I'm sure, a board of elders or a board of people, other pastors, campus pastors. I'm sure you all make the decisions together. But as a lead pastor, those decisions kind of fall on your shoulders to the general congregation. Now, how do you deal with decisions that are made that people don't agree with? Uh, That's a great that's a big question, because when you're dealing with people, you're going to have differences of opinion. And uh, one of the things that I guess that I have to tip my hat or be very thankful for is that our church has been established now for 40 years. And so there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of goodwill, I would say, from the people that I definitely don't want to mess with. Right. So when there is a hard decision that's going to be made, the majority of people that have been part of our church for a good long time, it's like a big family. They can absorb the feelings of, a, of disagreeing with a decision and try to stick with it to work through it because they have so much invested in relationship in the church, so much invested in serving in the church, and they're willing to, to stick it out. But that being said, I think in, in leadership in the church, we always have to remember that before we're leaders, that we're shepherds. And uh, we're not there as CEOs making financial decisions or spreadsheet decisions. We're making decisions that affect people. And we always want to take that into account. The reason why I say that is one of the things that has perplexed me is this utilitarian view of things. What that looks like, I'll just give you an example. Um, A good friend of mine is an elder in a church in California. The church is about 6,000 people. And they were reading some of these books 
that are out there about, you know, cutting ministries that are not effective and simple church and all this type of thing. And so they just decided to start cutting ministries to streamline. And they never took into account that this church had been around for a hundred years, the way that people felt about those ministries. They started looking at everything from a perspective that I would say is not healthy. For example, they had a campus. They only had a couple hundred people at it. And they said, well, a couple hundred people is not worth our time. And so we're just going to shut it down. They're reading these books, talking about church as if it's a corporation. And so when it comes down to making hard decisions, I want to just make sure you, everybody understands. So I'm very clear on it. We always prioritize people. In walking that through, Joe had already had mentioned that I have an eldership. I have staff pastors. If there's a decision that's going to affect a lot of people or going to be a hard decision, I would say that I want to make sure that I've given it full thought, have vetted it through proper spiritual people, and I have spent time in prayer on it. Here's a great example of this with this whole coronavirus. Well, now we start having to ask ourselves a question. We, we can't be shut down forever. I mean, well, I'm not even sure if this is biblical, what we're doing. I mean, the Bible clearly gives command, do not neglect the assembling of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. Churches have met through plagues in church history. I do know that during the Spanish flu of 1918, they closed in America for three weeks, but even three weeks was pushing it. And so, you know, the decision has to start to be made. Like, are we going to come back to church? How is that going to happen? So we go from that place of like, look, here's how far we will go. Here's what we want to be looking for. We start looking at statistics in our area, uh, hospitalizations, bringing it before the elders. Then, then we do open up part of the conversation that starts to happen. How do we keep people safe? So we've discussed things from, do we do temperature checks? Some of the elders, some of the staff people feel that's too invasive. But can we do that with volunteers? Yes, we'll do that with volunteers. All the children's ministry people will have to have their temperature checked. So we make a hard decision. We try to explain it to people. But at the end of the day, people have to see from the leadership we have in the multitude of counselors, there's great safety. We have weighed these decisions. We've taken them seriously and we're moving forward to the best of our ability. I'd like to say that I have been godly or perfect in all of my decision making. And I would tell, tell you that I have not been. But what I'm going to tell you is, is that after you make a decision that you just kind of make on a whim and you realize how it hurts people, as you grow, you should be able to, A, apologize for that, and B, learn from it, and bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to lead your people how you would lead it. One of the scariest scriptures for me in the Bible, and I say this frequently, and I've said it through the years, is the Bible tells us to shepherd God's flock, right? Now, we're not CEOs, we're shepherds. And it says this, because one day the great shepherd is going to appear and he's going to hold all of us under shepherds accountable on how and what we did to that flock. And that's very, very scary. And I think, obviously, we love God and we we serve him and God is a good God. He's our father, but we revere him. And take that very, very seriously. And we want to live to, to please him, to honor him, for him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. As people in a church, you have to trust that your leadership is not necessarily making all of these decisions 
on a whim, right? Like if, if everybody in the congregation knew all of the conversations that were had, all of the research that was done, all of the counsel that people looked for, they maybe would be a little more understanding <laughs> if they are not necessarily in agreement with the decision being made. That's true, because all they get is the final decision, right? Totally. Uh, and I could give you a, I'll give you a real life scenario where, where people didn't know or situation and it cost us. I had to fire one of our staff members one time. He had some unique issues that needed confrontation. And I personally, which let me back up for the size of our church and the amount of our staff, generally speaking, if you make it to my desk and I'm having to confront you on an issue, it usually will end right there. Okay. So people understand the seriousness of it. Well, this situation wound up on my desk and in my office and I lovingly talked to this person and tried to correct them on it. Well, it wasn't more than two months later that I'm still having the same reports on this issue that's happening. So I got together with this person again and I basically said, listen, you know, I've never had the experience where I've talked to someone twice. What's going on? While they were kind of humble and apologetic in the meeting, they went from there and the issue started happening again a few months later. So finally, I sat down with the, the person again, and this time with another person, another pastor. And I said, listen, this is my third time talking to you. I'm just going to tell you, it's over with. Like, I'm not going to have this conversation again. I can't even believe that I'm having it again. I don't know what to do, you know. Well, again, forward three months, another major thing happens. I'm not a CEO. Okay, I'm a pastor. I'm trying to figure out, this, this doesn't make sense. Like, why is he doing this. So I, I'm thinking he's probably got some larger issues uh, in his life that really needs to be dealt with. So when I met with him the fourth time, I said, look, we've gone through this. I'm stepping you back from ministry for a month and we're just going to try to deal with this issue. Okay. And in the meantime, I called the counselor and I said to this counselor, I said, listen, I really need your help. Here's what's going on. I've talked to this guy four times. Normally, what the standard rule book would be after the third, at the third time he should have been fired. I'm not even willing to fire him after the fourth time because I love him and I want him to succeed here, but I need your help. So I brought this counselor in. The counselor actually is from St. Louis. The church actually paid for this counselor to come in from St. Louis to meet with this guy and try to diagnose the problem. So he met with him over two days. At the end of the two days, the counselor said to me, Mike, you should have fired this guy months ago. And I went through the whole thing of like how, you know, I love this guy and I just wanted to work with him. He's like, he goes, I understand that, Mike, but the issues that he has, he cannot deal with while he's in ministry. He has to be let go. So what happened was I wound up having to fire him. Now, when I did that, because we had just stepped him down for ministry, they thought we only had one conversation with him and then we fired him. They didn't know that we had had multiple conversations over a year that led to this. Because again, like I said, we have, we have a lot of goodwill in our church. People know us, people have walked with us. They give us the benefit of the doubt, but they couldn't see any other scenario than the fact that we just talked to him, we stepped him down, then we fired him. And I'd do something that I really didn't want to do. And I had to say, I didn't get all the details of what was going on in the guy's life. I'd say, listen, I started dealing with this back last March. Okay, last March. This this meeting, by the way, is happening in February of the following year. So, with those type of scenarios happen, you know, it's very difficult. You got to process it with the congregation. But I think what I want people to walk away with is, if I would have just 
fired the guy based on just being a CEO type of deal, you're going to sow a bad spirit into the church. I, I go to pastor's conferences. I used to go to one of my friend's pastor's conferences, and he had this guy that would get up and speak. And everything that he said about leadership had to do with firing people over people's performance. Now, I get it. Listen, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and people have to, quote, unquote, perform, right? Like, you know, you got to be able to do your job. I get it. This is church's money, right? You want to be a good steward. This is God's money. I get it. But what I'm getting at is this, is that there's a truth that needs to be seen, is that we're all people that are all growing in our relationship with God and in our gifting, and we all need a lot of grace. What you have to be careful of as a leader is, what type of environment am I setting? Right. So are people seeing that I take a long time to make a hard decision? Are they seeing that I'm being very patient with people, wanting them to change? Because what you don't realize, what you're sowing into the atmosphere, if you're not patient, if you make quick decisions, guess what? The people are going to do the same thing. It's an environment that, that you set. I want people to be patient with me. That's not the reason why I do it. It's because this is the godly thing to do, right? But I think it's just a indicator of how much churches have allowed business principles to come into the church rather than being led by what the Bible says. The church is not a business. The church is a family. The church is a unique animal, actually. And you got to lead it accordingly. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of time you do hear people say, oh, the church is just a business. It's just a business of people, not a product. And and what you're saying is so true because it's not. Um, Yes, there's finances involved and there's people on staff and, you know, there are some aspects of business, but it is not a business in its core. I think that's important for people to understand. Yeah, absolutely. We have a decent sized church. So I get it. I get decisions have to be made. We're, we're making land purchases. We have contracts with, with uh, daycare that rents part of our, our church. We have tons of different things going on. I get it. But the church is not a business. It is not a business. What's been an interesting thing that, you know, you've said multiple times is I'm not a CEO. I'm a shepherd. I almost feel like maybe the senior pastors are almost forgetting that they are also called to shepherd their leadership. And I think that maybe that's hard because you probably have to shepherd your leadership team differently than you shepherd your congregation. I'm coming from a perspective of having seen other pastors and having friends that are in this environment, right? Which is everything is, is about becoming more successful. And when those things become a goal, then what happens is it's like you're, you're willing to make people expendable on your way there. And what I'm getting at is, you know, you've passed from death to life because you love the brothers, right? That's what, what John says. And John says this, if you can't love your brother who you can see, how can you love God who you can't see? You know, people read that and we automatically think, well, yeah, love is part of Christianity. We're called just love all people, which is indeed true, right? Christians are called to love all people, but that's not what John is getting at. What John is getting at is the thing that marks the true Christian is love for the church. John is literally saying that your love for the church is an indication of how much you love God. At the end of the day, you want to be able to wake up 20 years from today 
and be able to look in the mirror and say, I love what I've been a part of. And with that, Pastor Mike Chavello, lead pastor of Redeemer Church. If you'd like to get in touch with him or check out his church and what they're all about, you can go to their website, www.myredeemerchurch.com. Pastor Mike, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, Joe. It was a pleasure to be with you guys. Pastor Mike, it was so nice to talk to you, and hopefully we'll be seeing you soon. Yeah, wedding. (laughs) Can't wait to see you guys after all this coronavirus stuff is uh, in the past here. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe. Also, we would love to hear from you. So down below, you can leave us a review or a comment. Yeah, and you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Messy Modern Ministry for any teasers or updates on future episodes. Have a great day, guys. Bye.